Let me pray. Father God, this is your word. It's your word to us. And uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he comes to uh, be the word uh, of God to us. Uh, We uh, know that there are many people who search the scriptures looking for eternal life and yet missed you, didn't see you in the scriptures. We pray that that wouldn't be the case tonight. We pray that we would see Jesus and uh, everything that he is um, and all that he has done for us. Amen. Amen. Let me read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Have you heard the expression, out with the old and in with the new? Yeah? We heard the expression death to the old. We heard people say that, death to the old. Well, people are understandably wary of the latest trend, aren't they? The fact is a trend means it's going to come and go. And they're right to be wary because the new usually means death to the old. So the trusty, familiar system at work, replaced by a faster one, and everyone holds their breath. The tried and tested model of vacuum cleaner dumped for the modern, more sexier one. In church life, this happens. Trends come and go. People get caught up in the latest techniques to get the perfect Christian wife. I mean life. (laughs) Crazes that promise so much, yet deliver so little. And people see that, don't they? And sadly, the one thing they often succeed in doing is taking people away from the Bible. You'll see that. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and there's a newness to Jesus and his teaching, which everyone has recognised. They said this, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. So those same questions are going to arise And Jesus is addressing them here. 
Does his teaching mean death to the old? That's answered in 17 to 20. Do his disciples ditch the commandments? That he's going to answer in 20 to 26 in the rest of the chapter. So, does Jesus' teaching mean death to the old? Well, three times we get in verse 17 him saying no. He says, do not think I have come to abolish. Abolish is to do away with the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. And I say it again in a moment. The law and the prophets is kind of their long way of saying the Old Testament. The law is the first five books. The prophets make up a lot of the Old Testament. And twice Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them. In verse 18, if you look down at that, he says, For truly I say to you, nothing will be removed from them, not even a stroke of a pen, until all is accomplished. And in verse 19, Jesus has some words for those who would relax any of the commandments and teach others to do the same. Far from taking people away from the Bible... And taking people away from the Bible, Jesus says that he fulfills them. Doesn't he? The word fulfill means literally to fill up. And so, so far in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen these kind of things happening. Matthew is at labour to tell us about this. The promises of the Old Testament being met, being fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, so you get some examples of that. 1 verse 22. It says this. Um, All this took place to fulfil what the Lord has spoken through the prophet. So one way Jesus fills the scriptures is he is the fulfilment of the scriptures. And uh, fulfilment of the the things predicted in the prophets. And actually we're getting to, we're in the Sermon on the Mount which is a whole uh, block of Jesus' teaching. And we've been seeing that his teaching explains the Old Testament. Oh, sorry, it shouldn't go away. It's come back. Great. Um, his teaching explains the Old Testament. So the sermon is really you've got tons of references to the Old Testament. And Jesus is basically unpacking and ex- explaining it and filling out its meaning. So that's the other way that Jesus fills uh, the scriptures. And actually, if you hear Jesus speak about the scriptures, he says, all of the scriptures are about me. He says that in Luke 24. Um, so everything is all about him. Um, and first off, this means that, if I don't know if you've read the Old Testament or you have some ideas about the Bible, but it does mean that if our ideas about Jesus and our ideas about the Old Testament, there can't be any contradiction. So some people say, I love the Old Testament. I don't really un- understand that Jesus bloke. And to do that is it must be wrong because Jesus says they're all about me. And the reverse is true as well because if we say that, oh, I love Jesus, but my Jesus, well, he's just a little bit more kind and considerate than the God in the Old Testament, we've got Jesus wrong. You see? It goes both ways. Jesus says the scriptures are all about me and he fills them. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So he's... he's Battered that one back. He's answered that question. Um, Does Jesus' teaching mean death to the old? 
No, not in the slightest. Okay, well, we're going to get on to the next bit of a passage, which is 21 to 26. And that question, does Jesus, do Jesus' disciples ditch the commandments then? Have they just sort of conveniently parked a lot of the Old Testament about what they, how they should live? Let's get on to that bit. Uh, let me read verse 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now what we're going to see Jesus do in this chapter is he does pretty much that and he does it six times. He starts off saying, you have heard it said. He gives a command that everyone has heard. Sometimes he'll give a little bit of an addition, which people generally thought was the main application of that command. And then he says, but I say to you. And that's the usual format. He's going to do that six times. And uh, you'll spot them by the way they're introduced. You have heard that it was said. And here, in verse 21, Jesus takes the commandment, you shall not murder. Um, Here he includes what was thought to be its main use. Um, So whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's what people thought that command meant. And surely it means that. Uh, But we'll see, as we see, we've just read, we see Jesus brings out further application. And what he's doing here is he's, he's filling the scriptures. He's taking a scripture that they think, well, we know that one, Jesus. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You need me to understand that. I'll tell you what it's about. And uh, he takes that command and he unpacks it in verse 22, doesn't he? In three ways. I put them on your sheet, um, just as a little little table so you can sort of see how they work out. He brings out three further applications. The first one, well, it definitely dismantles any idea that this was just outward behaviour, doesn't it? Let's read it. It says... Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wow. It's not just about the outward behaviour, Jesus says. He shows that the commands, demands, run deep, don't they? To the motives of our hearts. And it's probably no secret to us that the motive behind murder is anger. But this same anger, Jesus says, lies behind every word that's said in frustration or name-calling used to write someone off as a nobody. I've been thinking about this this week and my catchphrase is idiot. Okay? When someone does something, and I've even invented a frustrate, you know, another word for anger, which is frustration. Okay? It doesn't sound quite as bad. So if I say, I'm frustrated... And actually, I'm angry. And if I say, you idiot, that's what I'm doing, isn't it? I'm writing someone off. And you know for a fact that the person who you've just called an idiot, who's cut you up on the, on, on the road, that you're saying, away with you, be gone. 
You're casting them off. You want nothing more to do with them. It may not be putting a knife in them. But it, it is destroying them. It's saying, I want nothing more to do with you. And I've been thinking about this because uh, lots of people around London are rightly putting sort of knives and knife crime on the agenda. And it's really important they do that. And in America, they're putting guns on the agenda. It's really important that we think about putting guns in people's hands. And there are, hun- there, there are, loads of, there are families where they're ripped apart when a member of the family gets murdered. You know, a young teenager gets stabbed. Families ripped apart. That's true. And yet, if you look anywhere, there were hundreds more families on this estate as well that were ripped apart by words said in anger. Our words can do just as much damage and they carry the same deadly poison. And we use them so, so willingly, don't we? We sort of think, oh, it's easy, it's easy for me to say, idiot. Um, so Jesus is taking the command here and he's, he's, he's not sort of flouting it or saying it's any less than it should be. Let me show you some of these pictures. Sorry, I've got... person looks at the command, they think, what's the minimum? And they see that. And let me get to these in a moment. <laughs> um, so Jesus doesn't max, uh, minimise the command. He, he shows the maximum of it. But why do we want the minimum? So what is it about the minimum that we really think, think is, is, is best for us? Um, well, it's the easy option, isn't it? And uh, I put these two pictures up because uh, the left-hand side is parenting tips. Yeah. So if you've ever given instructions to a child, you will have seen this play out in action. The minimum. So you say to your son or daughter, you, you must leave the house with a coat. You mean wearing it. The child takes the coat... If you're lucky, they put it in their bag. If you're unlucky, they dump it on the pavement outside the house. I left the house with a coat. You told me to leave the house with a coat. I did what you said. <coughs> Obviously, that's not what is meant, is it? Um, so the minimum is there from, from a young age, um, and it's not just children. And the other reason is we're hypocrites, aren't we? So, um, if I can take a single application of one command and say, oh, I've done that, it makes me feel great. And if I can take a single application and say, they're not doing it, well, I can judge them, can't I? I can say, I'm better than them. And that's some of the reasons why we love the minimum. And Jesus comes in and he, he, he really raises the bar, doesn't he? The command always had this uh, application, but Jesus is drawing it out um, so that we see it. So the maximum are those three things. Everyone who is angry, whoever insults, and whoever says you fool. 
And as well as maximising the command, Jesus maximises the punishment. So you go down that, that, those three, don't you? The first one will be liable to judgment, similar to what they were saying about murder. Um, could be judgment in terms of the council uh, or death. The next one is liable to the council. And the last one, which we might say is the, is the smallest of the three, you fool, well, that will land you up in hell, Jesus says. So he maximises the command, but he maximises the punishment. And this is where we get really uncomfortable. Because we tend to think that our sin is small. And we adjust the consequences of it accordingly. The anger, or the angry word, might seem small. But it is deserving of hell, Jesus says. Um, And actually, hatred of others expressed in anger is always serious in this way. It's anger and not simply taking a life that results in us being liable to judgment, God's judgment. Jesus says that judgment will come to everyone who and whoever is angry. So we are all deserving of hell. Because ultimately we've hated others and we've hated God. And uh, if we're shocked, this would have particularly shocked those who thought that they scored highly on this command. It is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus starts with uh, do not murder. I mean, we all are on the same page here. We all think, yes, that's absolutely right, Jesus. And uh, in Jesus' day, they were known as the scribes and the Pharisees. And in human terms, you wouldn't have found anyone more committed to the commandments than these guys. They'd actually worked out that in the Old Testament, there were 613 commands of God. And they'd set about observing them meticulously, if their most immediate application. They would have been cheering Jesus on in verses 18 and 19 when he said... uh, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be, this, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, Jesus! But whoever does them, and they'll be thinking, oh, this is us. And whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you see, they would have been reading that, and they would have been saying, whoever's least, yeah, that's, that, that's other people relaxing these laws. And whoever's great, well, that's us. They didn't see that Jesus was talking about them. They were actually the ones relaxing the law and its demands. And they were teaching others to do so by their lifestyle. In striving to say that they kept this law by saying, I have not murdered. They'd reduced it down to its most narrow application. You see that? Do not kill. The minimum. So so I've said, why do we do this? Well, inside, I had that picture before, we're hypocrites. So we want one application to be able to say that we've done it and to use it to judge others often. And in fact, the Pharisees, and this this is us as well, we drift so far from the real meaning of the command 
that when Jesus arrives on scene and he's actually living it, we see him as the lawbreaker. And that's what they were doing, weren't they? they were, whoever's least in the kingdom, they were, they were thinking, Jesus, you're the one relaxing the commands. They've got it entirely the wrong way around. Shockingly, in verse 20, let's have a look at that. Jesus says that their standard of righteousness, and you've got to get this, 613 commands. If I asked anyone here, including myself, what are the Ten Commandments, we'd, we'd be fumbling. They knew all 613. And they ticked them off each day. They made sure that they were doing them. Because to them, that was what the game was. That's, that's what they had to do. And it, Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds, unless your, your goodness is better than these guys, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to get that. He's, unless you're, you're better than they are, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. This was outrageous. It's the modern equivalent of saying your goodness needs to exceed Mother Teresa. Yeah? Needs to be more compassionate than she is. Needs need to live a better life than she has. Um, so we've seen that Jesus maximises the command and he does that to show that we are all lawbreakers. We've all broken this command. And whoever thinks they're good, they're just kidding themselves. They might be kidding other people too, but they're not kidding him. And uh, everyone who is angry, whoever says you fall, is liable to the fire of hell. Um, so that's the first, ap- the three applications that Jesus gives, the, the, and with the maximum punishment as well, to show us that we are lawbreakers, deserving of hell. And, in, and remember, he's talking his, to his disciples here. Um, so in verse um, 23 to 26, um, he's talking to those who have recognised that they are least in terms of these plants, that they have recognised that they are poor in spirit, that they have no righteousness of their own, and they have come to Jesus and followed him because he is the one who gives them his righteousness. And so he then gives two illustrations of, they're positive illustrations of what this command looks like in practice. And before we do the same thing and we think, well, these are just another two commands to add to our 613. Um, that's not the point, is it? They're just, they're scenarios to show that love for God and love for others is not just about avoiding retaliation, but the full picture is reconciliation. And so let's have a look at them. Uh, did I read it? No, I haven't read it. Let's read it. Um, verse 23 to 26. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. These are illustrations of what it means, what that command means, in terms of love for others. And uh, it's not avoiding retaliation, it's seeking reconciliation. So Jesus, he assumes that Christians will get angry. And they'll fall out. That's the scenario, isn't it? If your brother has something against you. Notice that it's the brother having something against you, it's not... It's not you having a bone to pick with him. And notice that it's not him coming to you, it's you going to him. So this is sort of the fullness of what Jesus is, uh, of what that command is. That there would be reconciliation that is sought and, uh, and actually strive for because, um, because the fulfilment of the law is love for God and love for others. And um, so, and it's not really surprising, is it, when we see this type of reconciliation amongst people who have recognised that God has done this exact thing for them. So we have angered God with our angry words and our angry hearts. And we're deserving of death and hell. And yet God does not hold against us he does not bring that judgment on us, but instead gives us eternal life. So, we're the murderer on death row, and yet God does not give us death. He gives us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so it's, it makes sense, doesn't it, that people who have understood that, the people who have, have received that, that they would put themselves out to want to be reconciled with others. It sort of is a, is a natural response, isn't it? Um, and that's what Jesus is describing here. This same God at work in brand new people, it transforms them to look like him and to seek reconciliation. And notice that um, it goes on in private. So you have the opportunity to do, bring your gift in church. Uh, where everyone can see you and uh, and yet you're going you're leaving that place and privately going to the person who you know is not he's, he's just upset with you there's a problem there and you're being reconciled um, and even the thing that we think is well that's got to take first importance uh, being at the altar and offering our gift to God and um, Surely that's worship of God. That's worship of God. That's got to be first importance. Jesus says, no. It's being reconciled. Do that first. God's brand new people will be people of reconciliation. And they will get angry. And, and they'll need, need to be reconciled. Because sinners, they're sinners. And they'll need to be forgiven. And they'll need to seek forgiveness. Um. And the other example uh, is actually, I think, probably, it just says your accuser. So it's, it's not necessarily someone who is a believer even, but you're, you're going to them and you're wanting to reconcile. You're wanting to sort, out, sort it out. 
not letting it go. And you're doing that quickly. Um, what can we learn from this? Well, I hope we've seen that if uh, we, we can see in the, what's wrong in the world, but we struggle to see it in ourselves. In fact, we don't. And we need God's commands to show us our hearts. We are angry and murderous. God's kind to do that because it shows us our complete inability to keep his commands. To live as he would have us. And we need to let these commands point us to Jesus who lives them. That's what they were there to show us. And he calls us to know him. So if you're new here today, it's great that you're here. It's great that you, you know that through the scriptures you're seeing who Jesus is and what he says. Keep coming. Keep seeing who Jesus is. And um, perhaps you've been to church a lot. And um, we can do an awful lot, can't we, from a great sense of duty. It gets us to do what we ought to do. Which in the end boils down to the minimum that we need to do. And actually this is a painful but necessary shock to discover that our best attempts at law keeping won't get us to heaven. They only serve actually as a proof of our hypocrisy. They show how far we've drifted from the real thing that we don't look and wonder at Jesus when he turns up. If that's you, it's great to admit that before God and to seek him in prayer. Um, and maybe you're a real believer. It is striking, isn't it, that the mark of God's people is reconciliation. And it's, it's, it doesn't wait for the, the other person to see their point of view or bring it up with them, but it wants to grow closer together. Um, I was really struck when I spent a bit of time in South Africa. Um, I was 19 and I was in a church on the edge of town for six months. And South, South Africa, you know, is, uh, had the apartheid back in the 80s, 90s, I think it was. It only just stopped, I think, around, around about then. Um, so people just had all this hatred and animosity because of what had gone on in South Africa. And yet in the church, there was both Africana South Africans, white African people, families, and black Sasutu families together. Being brought together by the gospel. And that's what the gospel does. It reconciles people to each other. The powerful thing is that they could be in the same room. And not just in the same room. They loved each other. Um, and then in the school, there was this, the only male... Uh, role model they had some of these kids whose dads were away all the time or had left the only male role model they had was an Africana male um, who once at one point they would have said oh he took all our farms away and yet he was the one who was giving them an example of how to live and loving them and serving them Uh, let's thank God for the gospel let's thank God for reconciling us to him and reconciling us to each other. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for um, showing us our hearts. Um, thank you for revealing our sin and showing that we are lawbreakers, we are murderers. And thank you for showing us that, um, that though we can't keep the law that you have, and thank you for showing us how great you are in the kingdom, that you would teach the commands and, and do them. Pray that we would uh, listen to you, keep listening to you. And I pray that we would, um, uh, in this church, be people who reconcile and go to each other in our sin, in our anger, and, uh, and be brought back together because of your love for us. In Jesus. Amen. Amen.